Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 25th of June, 2015, here across the Dateline in Japan. We are joined today on the line from the United States by James Perloff, a guest that you will remember from previous conversations here on the Corbett Report, talking about his books, Truth is a Lonely Warrior and the Shadows of Power, as well as conversations that we've had on the Lusitania and uh, Pearl Harbor. And he has done a lot of very interesting research over the years, so I hope you will be familiar with his work at jamesperloff.com. And you might remember he is also the the writer of the Shadow Ring documentary that we were recently talking about with Austin Green. So, James Perloff, it's great to have you back on the program today. And great to be back on what may be the number one alternative media show. You flatter me, sir. All right. (laughs) Well, it is the 25th of June, at least in Japan at the moment. So, let's talk about uh, an event that is resonant on this date that most people probably won't even think about or know about, but this is the anniversary of the beginning of the Korean War. This is the 65th anniversary, the Korean War starting back in 1950, and the Korean War is often known as the Forgotten War, and I think appropriately so, because it is not only forgotten in the mainstream world, but also in the alternative world. There isn't a lot of um, good research out there about the Korean War and alternatives to the official story, so on that note, I will commend to the listeners and viewers your very illuminating piece, The Korean War, Another Conflict That Served the Illuminati Agenda, that is up on jamesperloff.com. The link will be in the show notes so people can go and read this for themselves. It goes into a great degree of detail deconstructing the official mythos of the Korean War. But James, it strikes me that since there are, I'm sure, a lot of people in the crowd who know of the Korean War, but don't know much about it or what it was really about or what was happening, let's start today by just going over what the official line was on the Korean War, and then we'll start to pick that apart. Why Why are we told the Korean War happened? Well, to defend freedom and democracy, as the usual reasons, the war began, as you mentioned, 65 years ago today, and it began with the invasion of South Korea by North Korea heavily armed forces and U.S. troops came to the rescue of South Korea, but under uh, the authority of the U.N. And so this was a U.N. war, and uh, General MacArthur was able to make a brilliant landing at Incheon. That's one of the more remembered uh, military events of that war. He drove the North Korean forces back almost to the Yalu River, which marked the border of China, and then Chinese communist Chinese troops poured into the war. MacArthur was fired over conflicts he had with President Truman. The war ground on until 1953, ended in stalemate, with the north-south borders being uh, established at pretty much where they originally had been at the 38th parallel. That's right, and that's an interesting narrative for a lot of reasons. For example, the idea that this fits into that domino theory that was uh, co- prominent in the early Cold War, that Korea would be the next domino, and if, if we let South Korea fall, then the commies would take over everything, which is 
immediately and on its face a ridiculous proposition because of course who was given the uh, the, the the right to to uh, set up a communist dictatorship north of the 38th parallel it was stalin in an agreement with roosevelt let's talk a little bit about that agreement that's right so many of the wars that we fight it turns out that we actually created the circumstances that brewed the war to begin with and so the korean war really does trace back to american foreign policy in the Second World War, when we were fighting a two-front war against Japan and Germany in Asia and Europe, Stalin, of course, was fighting a one-front war, as tough as it was against Germany. And at the Tehran and Yalta conferences, the big three conferences, Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin, Roosevelt asked Stalin if he would break his non-aggression pact, which he had with Japan, and enter the Pacific conflict, the, uh, the Asian conflict fighting against the Japanese. And Stalin agreed, but he had big conditions. He wanted the United States to give him all the tanks and uh, trucks and munitions that his Far Eastern Army would need for that. And Roosevelt agreed. And we sent 600 shiploads of Lend-Lease to Stalin for the express purpose of fighting Japan. But uh, he was very wily, and he stayed out until we'd beaten Japan. And on that note, I want to quote something that's very relevant that gives us insight into his plan and the plan of his counterparts here in America. This is uh, from a dispatch sent by our ambassador to the Soviet Union, William C. Bullock, in 1935, to the Secretary of State. Quote, it is the heartiest hope of the Soviet government that the United States will become involved in a war with Japan. The Soviet Union would certainly attempt to avoid becoming an ally until Japan had been thoroughly defeated and it would then merely use the opportunity to acquire Manchuria and Sovietize China, unquote. Now, that is very prophetic. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Stalin stayed out until we'd already bombed Hiroshima. Uh, there was no need to invite Stalin in at this point. We did not need him to win the war. He was given control of North Korea as the co-victor of this war, which he had really almost nothing to do with winning at all. And the uh, pretext for that was actually laid out I, when I was writing my book, The Shadows of Power. I found an article, April 1944 in Foreign Affairs, the flagship journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is our, uh, the branch of the oligarchy that sets American foreign policy. It was called Korea in the Post-War World. And it said um, uh, this about Korea. It said, will a new international organization, meaning the UN, now under discussion be functioning in time to undertake the job? of administering Korea, which had been a protectorate of Japan or a colony of Japan until then. It does not seem probable. There's also the possibility that a trusteeship for Korea could be assumed not by a particular country, but by a group of powers, say, America, Great Britain, China, and Russia. And of course, unquote. And of course, what happened was it, uh, China and Britain uh, stepped out and it fell to America and Russia. And that agreement was worked out in a meeting between Stalin and Harry Hopkins, who was an agent both of Bernard Baruch and of Stalin, because I'm sure you've run across this book at some point uh, from Major Jordan's diaries. Major jo George Racy Jordan was a Lend-Lease expediter who documented that Harry Hopkins was sending, he sent the uh, Soviets the blueprints and the materials for their first atomic bomb. But that deal was worked out and Stalin became the, uh, the trustee or guardian of North Korea. And, of course, he set up a massive army, well-equipped army under Kim Il-sung. So it was our policymaking that generated the, um, the atmosphere that this war was generated in. 
Well, you raised the important point of the 600 shiploads of supplies sent to Stalin for his uh, participation in the Japanese uh, war, which is ridiculous because, as you say, it was completely unnecessary. But beyond that direct and obvious and on-the-record uh, help, there was also, the, of course, the behind-the-scenes help that had always undergirded the Soviets' um, uh, military power. And I'll just uh, take the liberty of quoting Antony Sutton from uh, The Best Enemies Money Can Buy. In Korea, we have uh, direct killing of Americans with Soviet weapons. The American casualty roll in the Korean War was 33,730 killed and 103,284 wounded. The 130,000-man North Korean army, which crossed the South Korean border in June 1950, was trained, supported, and equipped by the Soviet Union, and included a brigade of Soviet T-34 medium tanks with U.S. Christie suspensions. The artillery tractors were direct metric copies of Caterpillar tractors. The trucks came from the Henry Ford Gorky plant, or the Zill plant. The North Korean Air Force has had 180 Yak planes built in pl plants with U.S. land lease uh, equipment. These, these, these yaks were later replaced by MiG-15s powered by Russian copies of Rolls-Royce jet engines sold to the Soviet Union in 1947, uh, which I think just gives a flavor of the fact that the Soviet military prowess was completely and totally supported and undergirded by uh, Western technology transfers that had been going on since the 1920s and uh, leading up to the point where they could support that North Korean army in that uh, conflict. So again, Western participation absolutely was behind this Korean conflict on both sides. And of course, that leads us to the question of who? Who did this and why? And uh, I, I don't think we'll at all be surprised to find out about the institutional involvement of the Council on Foreign Relations in all of this, but perhaps you can elaborate on that. Yes, and just to follow up on your, uh, your comments there, it certainly reminds me of uh, ISIS and how we armed and trained uh, ISIS. And so we see this continuity of the United States generating its own enemies. But in terms of the Council on Foreign Relations, this was very much their, uh, their baby, their war. And I want to comment that this was a war that was foreseen. The United States, uh, as, you, uh, well, as you pointed out, the North Koreans were heavily armed. They had, I believe it was actually 380 T-34 tanks, and they had 450 uh, bombers and fighters uh, provided by the Soviet Union with the uh, help of this uh, U.S. technology. Now, when the United States left South Korea, we didn't, they didn't have one tank. They didn't have one anti-tank gun. Their Air Force consisted of 22 planes of very limited fighting capacity. So it was obvious that war was going to break out. And it was affirmed by General Albert C. Wedemeyer, who was sent on a fact-finding mission in 1947. And his report was suppressed by Secretary of State General George Marshall and President Truman. So the people of America and the Congress didn't find out. But when he retired from the military, he wrote this book, Wedemeyer Reports. And the exclamation point is on the, on the cover and the title was because he wanted to make sure people did get his report. But what he wrote in that report, he said, quote, the withdrawal of American military forces from Korea would result in the occupation of South Korea by either Soviet troops or, it seems more likely, by the Korean military units trained under Soviet auspices in North Korea, unquote. And, of course, he was right. Now, in 1949, the United States pulled out of South Korea. Uh, not an auspicious time to do so because Mao Zedong, that was also the year he consolidated communist control of China. So if you're Kim Il-sung, you're looking at the South. They don't have an army that can compete with yours. American troops are gone. 
Mao Zedong in Communist China is backing your rear. He's, he's got your back covered. So what does he do? January of 1950, he has a address that he gives to the Korean people, North Korean people. And he said, this will be our year of unification. And he called for, quote, complete preparedness for war, unquote. Now, the State Department has to know this is going on. But how do we respond? Two weeks later, Dean Acheson, Secretary of State, gives a very famous speech at the National Press Club, and he outlined the U.S. defensive perimeter, which included Japan, but he put South Korea outside of our defensive perimeter, which is given a direct invitation to Kim Il-sung to go ahead and attack, thinking there won't be a U.S. response. And, uh, of course, we, we know what eventuated from that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the fighting itself and some of the, the key events that actually prolonged this war um, well past the point where it would have otherwise drawn to a conclusion. And just quoting from your article, again, at jamesperloff.com, uh, the backstage illuminists controlling the American government had no intention of fighting communism. General Douglas MacArthur, commander of the UN forces, learned this the hard way. MacArthur not only succeeded in repelling the North Korean invasion, but following his soldiers' instincts, he pursued victory and liberated North Korea from communism nearly all the way to the Yalu River, which marks the border of China. At this point, Red China poured its troops into the conflict. MacArthur ordered the Yalu's bridges bombed to keep the Chinese out, but within hours, his order was countermanded by the Secretary of Defense, General George Marshall. Uh, well, unfortunately, no surprise there for people who know about Marshall, but let's get a little bit into that, uh, that, that interesting countermanding of orders. Right. This was the first time there had been a limited war, and this was completely alien to everything that MacArthur understood. Wars are normally fought to a conclusion of victory, uh, revolutionary war, victory over Britain, uh, civil war, not fought to a stalemate, the South surrendered. World War One, victory in the end for the Allies over the Central Powers. World War Two, which MacArthur had just experienced, victory over Japan and Germany. So his intention was to defeat the enemy. But what the Council on Foreign Relations had in mind was a policy laid out by George Kennan in Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, called Containment. We weren't fighting for victory, we were fighting for stalemate. And uh, what he said when he learned General Marshall's order it was General Marshall who had betrayed the men at Pearl Harbor by not passing on warnings about the Japanese attack and uh, who had also uh, gone to China as uh, Truman's emissary and really manipulated the Chinese victory there very much. He had a great deal to do with that. And I have an article on that um, called China Betrayed, which you can link to from my website. And a great book on that is How the Far East Was Lost by Dr. Anthony Sutton, who used to chair the history department at the University of Dallas. But here's what MacArthur said when he learned that he could not bomb the bridges of the Yalu, which allowed the, the Chinese troops to come in. He, he said, quote, I realized for the first time that I'd been actually denied the use of my military power to safeguard the lives of my soldiers and the safety of my army. To me, it clearly foreshadowed a future tragic situation in Korea and left me with a sense of inexpressible shock, unquote, General MacArthur. Let's also talk about the other factor in this. Of course, the Chinese were, were the decisive factor in pushing um, the, the U.S., the U.N. forces back down um, south of the 38th. And the Chinese, of course, involvement in this was really m very much necessitated on a pretty startling um, statement that was given by uh, Harry Tr Truman at the start of the conflict. 
I have ordered the Seventh Fleet to prevent any attack on Formosa. As a corollary of this action, I am calling upon the Chinese government on Formosa to cease all air and sea operations against the mainland. The Seventh Fleet will see that this is done. I, I'm sure most people will gloss over that, as I'm sure they did at the time, but that is a startling statement for what it actually allowed the Chinese to do in terms of getting involved in this conflict. Perhaps you can break that down for us. Right. Uh, it has to be remembered that in 1949... Although the nationalist government of China had fled to Formosa, which we now call Taiwan, the grip that the communists had on uh, mainland China was still very tenuous, and Chiang Kai-shek, with a two-million-man army, was very eager to reinvade. And by having the Seventh Fleet prevent his troops from doing that, from crossing and attacking Mao Zedong, and the communists, essentially what he was doing was guarding the communist flank to make an attack on American troops. And, of course, he also forbade the, the uh, nationalist Chinese to take part in the war, even though it was a U.N. war. And at that time, they were seated as members of the U.N. Um, and I just lost my, my train of thought. But, uh, oh, I'm going to quote uh, General Lin Piao, who was the commander of uh, Chinese forces in Korea. He said, quote, I, I never would have made the attack and risked my men and my reputation if I had not been assured that Washington would restrain General MacArthur from taking adequate retaliatory measures against my lines of supply and communications, unquote. So there actually is this fix in on both sides. Um, we should talk a little about that. And, well, I think the best segue there is to mention the fact that this war could have been prevented completely by Stalin and the Soviet Union because they were members of the Security Council of the UN. This is a UN war, and we need to really get into that, because this is the central motivation for the war. But as members of the Security Council, they could have vetoed the Korean War. We, uh, we went there under UN mandate, but the Soviets did not vote. And uh, I'm just going to read from the memoirs of Craig Lee. He was the Secretary General of the UN. And the Soviets had staged a walkout from the uh, UN in protest of their failure to seat Red China at that time that the Korean, the Korean War began. But I'm just going to quote what Craig Lee uh, wrote. He, he invited the Soviet delegate to attend this vote and to cast his veto. He said, quote, the afternoon of June 27th, this is two days after the war began, I attended a luncheon with the Soviet Assistant Secretary for Security Council Affairs, Konstantin Zinchenko, given in the Stockholm restaurant on Long Island. I was seated between Ernest Gross and the Soviet delegate Yakov Malik, whose boycott of the uh, council was then ongoing. As we came to dessert and coffee, I recalled to Mr. Malik that the rest of us were about to set off for the meeting of the Security Council. Won't you join us? The interest of your country would seem to me to call for your presence. Unquote. He shook his head and replied, No, I will not go there. So the Soviets, now, they, and establishment historians call this a blunder. It's like Stalin says, ah, jeepers creepers, I had a chance to, uh, to stop this, um, this UN uh, intervention, and uh, my, my surrogate, Kim Il-sung, could have carried out the war unmolested, and we goofed, and that's what we're supposed to think, is that they goofed, but I don't believe it was a goof at all. Uh, Malik was not punished by Stalin. He died in 1980. This was clearly... Uh, there's an agreement, there's an understanding on both sides. And I should also mention that this guy that uh, trivially mentioned, the uh, head of uh, political affairs and security matters, the undersecretary, Konstantin um, Zinchenko, 
was the man who General Mar General uh, MacArthur had to give his reports to. So the Soviets were actually all overseeing what was going on by MacArthur from their station in the UN. A very strange war. A very strange war. A very strange war, and one that, from what we've painted here, doesn't seem to make any sense um, in any narrative that we could paint. So the question becomes about the motivation, and you hinted at that earlier about the United Nations' role in this being the key primary uh, motivation for this war. Let's talk about what the United Nations' role in this was and why it was so important to start this war under its auspices. The UN is the key motive, validating the UN, and of course... The Council for Relations is all about world government. They were created in 1921 as a direct reaction to the U.S. Senate's rejection of our entering the League of Nations, which was the first attempt to form a world government. And then during World War II, when they were like an adjunct of the American government, it was their informal agenda group that drew up the plans for the U.N. And uh, it was President Roosevelt made them stop in the U.N. his top post-war priority just as for Woodrow Wilson, creating the League of Nations was his top post-war priority for World War One. You might recall he stroked out traveling the country trying to get us to join the League of Nations. Wilson did. So this is their baby. And, uh, of course, David Rockefeller, longtime chairman of the CFR, it was his father, John D. Rockefeller Jr., who gave the U.N. the $8.5 for the land here in America, uh, they wanted it to be in America so that America would not opt out this time. They wanted Americans to feel safe with world government. But once they had the world government in place, they wanted to validate it. And if you look at the, uh, the uh, charter of the UN, it says uh, the first plank is, quote, to maintain international peace and security, unquote. So there were a lot of naysayers in the Congress saying, you know, the U.N. is never going to be able to do that. So they wanted to show that the U.N. could maintain peace and security. And backing that up, uh, if you go to uh, an article again in Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the CFR, April 1952, the article Korea in Perspective by Adlai Stevenson says, quote, the burden of my argument based on the meaning of our experience in Korea as I see it, is that we have made historic progress toward the establishment of a viable system of collective security, unquote. So, so James, what they're looking, they were looking at in this war was to use Korea as a limited war, and they did figure they could limit it. It's on a peninsula, you know, hard for other countries to get involved without, without permission. But even though it was called the UN war, actually 90% of the troops were American. They were using our, the, our military might to repel this aggression, but we were forced to, f to fight under UN auspices and their authority. And this might seem unreal to people now, but their go immediate goal at that time was to widen the role and authority of the UN, to give it the power to become this peacekeeping tool. Ultimately, they, they do want a world government with a world army uh, enforcing peace around the planet, and that's very much... Uh, what they had in mind here. Now, later on, because Americans and other countries resisted UN power, you might recall that Richard N. Gardner wrote an article for Foreign Affairs where he called for an end run around national sovereignty, where he said, we'll have to build it from the bottom up. Instead of empowering the UN from the top, we'll build it up with, you know, uh, regional organizations and regional treaties. We'll gradually strengthen world government and get it that way. But at the time, in Korea, this was a playground for them. This was their idea of empowering world government as a peacekeeper. 
Yes, and I think that precedent and it, what, uh, the, what it's hardwired into international relations should be apparent to us, but just let's make that explicit then. Why should we, sitting here in 2015, really care about this war that was 65 years ago? Because of the continuity, and that's why I wrote my book, Truth is the Lonely Warrior, is because to understand the present, we really need to understand the past. And for Korea... You might recall that when we went to war with Iraq, uh, President Bush and uh, Colin Powell were summoning UN Resolution 1441 as their mandate. So they're still doing that today. Uh, but it's very important that we have the continuity, the context, all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. So we're not just looking at 911, but understand everything that's brought us here uh, the World Wars, Tonkin Gulf, uh, the Lusitania the sinking of the main, all of these things have progressively led America into the role of the world's policemen, but ultimately a world government uh, where our own sovereignty will be subverted. It's a, it's a long-term plan, and the Korean War is a piece of that jigsaw puzzle. It certainly is, and uh, my hat's off to you for documenting this and putting this out there, because as I say, there isn't a lot of work on this in the alt media, at least not at this time, so I'm glad to see this out there. I'll refer people once again, of course, to this article, The Korean War, Another Conflict That Served the Illuminati Agenda, up on jamesperloff.com, and the link will, as I say, be in the show notes. Are there any other resources you'd like to direct people to on this topic? There's just one other comment I wanted to make about it, uh, if I may, the... Um the primary purpose was to validate the UN as peacekeeper, but there was one more uh, I'll mention before we close out tonight, and that was to override the congressional um, authority to declare war. Um, just to back that up, the CFR sent a memorandum to the State Department in 1944 that said, quote, a further difficulty was cited, namely that arising from the constitutional provision that only Congress may declare war. This argument was countered with the contention that a treaty will override this barrier, let alone the fact that our participation in such police action as might be recommended by the International Security Organization, UN, need not necessarily be construed as war, unquote. So what do you see Harry Truman doing in July of 1950? He gives a press conference to explain the Korean War. He says, quote, we are not at war. This is a police action, unquote. He didn't even bother to get congressional approval. Uh, because we were under the UN mandate, it was a police action, some police action. This is what I call in the article Orwellian semantics. It's not a war, it's just a little old police action. But tell that to the 138,000 casualties you referred to earlier, over 30,000 dead, over 100,000 wounded in a police action. But that was a second uh, uh, purpose be beyond validating the UN, was to override the uh, Congress's authority to declare war. We have not had a declaration of war since we got into the UN and since the Korean War. It hasn't happened. Let alone the Koreans and Chinese who died for this lie as well. Um, Three million. Pawns mm -hmm. of their yes. leaders, misleaders. Um, well, unfortunately, yes, this is the world we're living in. We better know about it. So once again, let's, uh, let's examine this. I'll refer people once again to your website, jamesperloff.com. James, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.